If you take your Bibles out or turn them on, um, that's, an, that's been an adjustment for me to talk about turning on your Bibles. Uh, we're going to talk about the hope of heaven. Um, the message is going in a different direction, and then I heard about Linda and remember the situation we had in our church in Cleveland and the impact that it had. So we want to, this is a, a topical message about heaven, and uh, which means we're going to we're going to kind of start ourselves in Second Corinthians chapter four and five, but we won't contain ourselves there. We're going to move around scriptures. So before we get into God's word, let me just uh, let me just uh, take time to pray. So join with me, Father. We as we consider the glorious hope of eternity. Lord, I just ask that the presence and power of your Holy Spirit would speak through your word. Lord, and bring comfort, bring encouragement, and bring hope to your people. Lord, we thank you for the gift of eternal life that you have given to us through the finished work of your Son. Lord, help us glory in that this morning. Help us to revel in what you have provided and what has been given to us as an inheritance, a down payment by your Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you may be familiar with John Bunyan's famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. Well, Bunyan constantly is reminding the reader as as the main character Christian and his friends, faithful and hopeful, are on their journey. And what he keeps reminding them is that the path that they're on is heading toward the celestial city. It's heading toward heaven. At times, they're passing folks that are going the opposite way, and they, they ask them, where are you going? At other times, they have people they encounter that are trying to veer them off of the path, and they, and they, they say, no, we can't go there. And they say, why not? He says, because we're going to the celestial city to see the king. Throughout their journey, sometimes they linger and they get refreshed at times, but they never stay long because they know that they've got to get back on the journey to the celestial city. Even when they were weary and tired, they climbed a mountain one time and they could look over and and see the glow and the glory of the celestial city and it gave them courage and hope. At the end of the book, as as Christian and and Hopeful were, were crossing the river of death. Christian became very fearful. And he, he, he said, I, I don't think I can make it. And Hopeful looked at him and says, look up. Look across the bank. Look at the celestial city. Christian looked up. And there it was in all its glory. And it gave him faith and courage and hope to finish the race. John Bunyan understood the Christian life well. Because that journey that Pilgrim was on is the same journey, the same path, and the same hope that we have as well. Our lives are ultimately leading to that final day when we will enter our heavenly home and stand in the Lord's presence. But oftentimes, we don't spend time like Pilgrim and Christian and Hopeful were doing, thinking about eternity until... 
until it kind of breaks in and interrupts our, our busy lives because someone close to us is either near death or has just died. And obviously, I'm aware just not too long ago about Linda's unexpected passing. I imagine many of you have wept some bitter tears. There's probably been some hope and rejoicing mixed in with the grief. And through all this, eternity has been more on your heart and mind in these recent weeks. My wife and I actually met Linda the last time we were here and met her with Nathan and had a brief interaction with her. She seemed uh, like such a sweet, humble, godly young lady who loved the Lord and loved God's people. When we heard of the news, it was a shock to us as well. Because as I said earlier, we experienced that in our smaller church in Cleveland when a 42-year-old mom, a wife of three children, passed away unexpectedly. And the impact on the church, a smaller church, is significant. So I understand where you're at. And my wife and I both want to just express our heart to Bob and Chris, who I know aren't here, and to Nathan, who we got to speak earlier to, and just say, we're so sorry for your loss. We grieve with you and for you, and you are in our prayers. You know, it's in times like these that I find myself wanting just to rid myself of the the trials and the suffering and the pain and the agony of this earthly life and to just breathe the fresh air of heaven in Jesus' presence, not in an escapist way, but in a way that says, this is not our home. This broken, fallen world, it's not our home. And you feel that in times like this. You get a lady that's in her prime of life, young lady, and you go, this, there's something wrong here. And you go, I want to be home. I want to be with Jesus. So this morning, we wanted just to consider what that home looks like, the hope of heaven. And let's do so. Let's begin our consideration in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Let me just give you a little background context. Paul, having proclaimed the gospel, is experiencing great opposition. But he hasn't lost heart. He hasn't lost heart because of the eternity that awaits him. Let's begin reading, just so you get some of the context, let's begin reading in in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul is saying, for what we, he's talking about he and Timothy, proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's his proclamation. But we have this treasure, referring back to verse 6, in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Skip down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self or our outer man 
is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the first place we want to start in our consideration of heaven is to remember that heaven is our home. Look again at verse 1 in chapter 5. Paul Paul writes, he says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, the tent analogy is very appropriate for Paul. He was a tent maker. And more than likely, tents were being sold by the Corinthians to incoming sailors for some sort of housing. Paul understood that a tent by its very nature is temporary. It is not a permanent structure. It's not a permanent dwelling place. It is vulnerable to the elements and the wildlife. And as Paul would know, is often in need of repair. Now, I've done plenty of camping and hiking when I was in my teen years. And despite all the advertisements for the tents that I used, that it would keep you warm, it would keep the bugs out, it would keep the rain and water out, None of the advertisements lived up to the billing. It was temporary, and I was very glad to get home into a secure place, into a permanent place. Paul also goes on earlier before that in chapter 4, verse 16, to talk about that our outer self, our outer man is decaying. It's wasting away. Both illustrations are an illustration. They're not of permanency, but of a temporary, fragile, earthly body. In time, the parts wear out and they fail. I think most of us who are aging like myself could say, like Paul, yes, our outer man is decaying day by day. But the inner man is being renewed in glory. What is permanent? What is eternal? What is even greater reality are not the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And so Paul, back in verse 1, he contrasts this tent with something that is eternal. Look again at verse 1. He says, For we know that if the tent which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. It's a tent versus a building. It's an earthly dwelling versus something that is fashioned by God. It it wears out. It's destroyed versus something that never dies, never wears out, never breaks down. It is eternal. Paul goes on in verses 2 through 4 just to really say, as he's pondering this, he's groaning that this mortal flesh 
would be swallowed up, this mortal life would be swallowed up by the eternal. Paul is likely referring to both the time when we're transferred into the presence of God after death, as well as when we put on this resurrected body that the Lord will give to his, all his believers on that last day. But what Paul is points to is the truth that we are not made for this world. This is not our home. We are made for another world, an eternal world. In his book, In Light of Eternity, Randy Alcorn shares a story about his best friend, Jerry. Jerry and Randy were best of buddies from grade school all the way till he died at age 38 of cancer. They played together. They got in trouble together. They did sports together. Uh, they were best men at each other's weddings. They raised kids together. And Randy Alcorn wrote that he had the privilege of being there with Jerry when he walked through the door from this world into the next. And this is how he concludes the story about his best friend. He said, when Jerry died, the room took on a profound sense of vacancy. His body was a temple in which his spirit and God's had dwelt. The moment he died, the temple lay deserted. Jerry's wasted body was not what was left of him. It was simply what he left. Jerry didn't end. He just relocated. He didn't cease to exist. He just got up and walked out and went where I couldn't see him from here. He goes on to write, Our time here was the preliminaries not the main event, the tune-up, not the concert. The friendship that began on earth will resume and thrive and grow in a far better world, the world for which we were made. We were made for another world. We were made for eternity. Heaven is our home. A second reflection on heaven is that heaven is more glorious than we could ever imagine. Paul, <clears throat> caught up into paradise and hearing things that are so glorious and so magnificent and so incredible that he could pen these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, in 2 Corinthians 12, he could say he could not say what he saw in paradise. He could not utter those words, but he could sum it up to say that it's beyond anything that we could imagine. The Apostle Paul in excuse me, the Apostle John in his visions recorded in the book of Revelation saw the heavenly Jerusalem come down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God as its radiance. Using symbolic language, he says that the, the, the walls and the foundation of the city are filled with jewels of all kind, and the roads are pure gold, and the gates are made of pure of pearl. And then John writes the following in Revelation 22. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. John's description is communicating that the glory and splendor that awaits us in eternity is just it's just beyond our imagination. Sometimes when you read this, some passages in the book of Revelation, it's like they stretch the English language. They're trying to say, they're trying to portray heavenly realities in such descriptive ways. And it's like they, they kind of fall short, but they try their best. Over 30 years ago, the wife of our pastor, when we lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, passed away after a long, uh, I think an 11 or 12 year bout with cancer. For a few weeks before her death, she, uh, she had someone with her 24 hours a day. And the following story was told to us by her daughter who was with her uh, by her bedside one, uh, one day. Joanna, who was our pastor's wife, she was in a coma-like sleep when she began to say, she said, isn't this a beautiful place? And look at all this food, this wonderful food. Her daughter told us that her expressions were filled with wonder and awe at the beauty and loveliness of something she was seeing and experiencing. Then her expression changed to some, from wonder and awe to some agitation, but that quickly passed. It's momentary, and soon she drifted back to sleep. When she woke up, her daughter asked her, she says, Mom, what was this place you were talking about? And Joanna said, I don't know, but I sure was mad at those men who brought me back. <laughs> I think in God's kindness to both Joanna and to her family, the Lord just opened up the veil between this world and the next. And he gave her a glimpse into eternity. Jonathan Edwards, in trying to put into words the joy and glory that awaits us in heaven, he wrote this. The saints will swim in an ocean of love and be eternally swallowed up in the infinitely bright and infinitely mild and sweet beams of divine love. Eternally receiving the light, eternally full of it, and eternally compassed round with it, and everlastingly reflecting it back again to its fountain. You know, even though we don't have a lot of descriptions of what eternal life will be like in heaven, Scripture is very clear enough that it is going to be beyond all that we can ever imagine. Let's consider just a third reflection. In heaven, we will experience the fullness of life. In heaven, we will know unbelievable joy and pleasures unmatched and unparalleled on this earth. 
David writes in Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Were we to take all the pleasures and joy that we've known on the face of the earth and boil it down into one moment, that one moment would not compare to every moment we will experience in heaven in the presence of the Lamb. That's the kind of fullness and joy we will know in the Lord's presence. As well, we'll have real spiritual bodies with physical substance. We'll be able to talk and walk and touch and feel. We'll be able to be recognized and known by name. Kind of like a caterpillar that becomes a butterfly or an acorn that becomes an oak tree. We will be us only far better. First John, the apostle writes in First John 3, says, Beloved, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that we will, when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Pondering the eternal weight of glory, C.S. Lewis writes, While we cannot give an exact description of the believer's future, the heavenly beings we do see in Scripture indicate that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to here in this life may one day be a creature which, if you saw them now, you would be greatly tempted to worship. As well, in heaven, we're going to enjoy joy-filled work and service. We'll not experience the pain and toil and futility and vanity of work on earth. Instead, our work will be enjoyable. It'll be fruitful. It'll be productive. And our service will be filled with unending joy. Isaiah 60 through 66 are chapters that speak often about the coming of the kingdom of God and what it's going to be like. And in Isaiah 65, Isaiah states, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat fruit. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Wouldn't it be great to work as God has given us the ability to work, but to do it, and it's always productive. It's always fruitful. It's never in sweat and toil and tears. Growing up, I always thought of heaven as exceedingly boring. I saw the paintings of the little cherubs with their harps on the clouds, and I, I just thought uh, that was not particularly enticing. As a teen, I picked up and learn the guitar. And then I kind of, as I was thinking about heaven, I thought, There's, I can only play the guitar so long. How can I, what am I going to do just, what, after I play the harp for a while, what else is there to do? So heaven just, just didn't look particularly appealing. But you know, these scriptures we just looked at attest to, that's quite the opposite is true. When we we shed this mortal flesh, when we shed all its weaknesses and frailty and sin, will be clothed with the fullness of life as God meant it to be. There's a, you may be familiar with a, an evangelist in the 19th century named Dwight L. Moody. Just before Dwight L. Moody died, he caught a glimpse of glory that awaited him. Awakening from sleep, he said to his son who was attending and standing by his bed, he says, earth recedes, heaven opens before me. If this is death, it is sweet. There's no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. 
Though his son answered his father dismissively, no, 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 father, you are dreaming. Mr. Moody looked at his son and replied, no, I'm not dreaming. I've been within the gates. This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. It is glorious. And then D.L. Moody went on to say, soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe it for a moment. I will be more alive than ever before. Linda, for all the vibrancy and life that she had on this earth, is more alive than ever before. And it goes for every one of friends and family that we have known that have gone on to be with the Lord who are believers. They are more alive now than they ever have been. They are filled with the fullness of life as God meant it to be. Let's consider the fourth reflection. In heaven, there will be no more sickness, sin, pain, or death. John recounts in Revelation 21, the God, he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, there's going to be no more skin diseases. There's going to be no more allergies. There's going to be can- no more cancer, no more headaches and handicaps and tumors and brain diseases and, and heart attacks. All the things that plague us sometimes daily, sometimes moment by moment, they'll be gone. There'll be no more heartache and accidents and decay and corruption. There will be no more sin. In fact, there will not even be the temptation to sin. Obedience to heaven and heaven will be easy and it will be joyful. And there will be no more death and no more grieving. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, all the effects and influences of sin, of sin and sickness and suffering and pain and death will be completely done away with. Oh, for that day. Oh, for that day. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, in heaven, we will see Jesus. Revelation 22, John tells us of heaven, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. One of my favorite scriptures comes from Psalm 73, verse 28. It says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Now, all of us, because the kingdom has broken into time and space, all of us have known that sense when you're in the nearness, in the presence of God. You just want to linger there. You want to be quiet. There's just this holy reverence. Imagine the wonder it's going to be to be in the presence, face-to-face with Jesus. What a glorious wonder that will be to, to look not through the eyes of faith, but to look at him with our own eyes, to bow before him and to thank him for his incredible grace, to know him without the eyes of faith, but to know him face-to-face. Oh, what I, I long for this more than anything else. Our communion and communion and fellowship with him will be even sweeter than anything we've experienced on earth. And what a joy it will be to know his embrace and his love without the veil of earth. 
It'll be a glory to continue to learn about him. His wisdom and his knowledge is unfathomable. He's infinite and will continue to understand the depths of his love and mercy and grace. We'll never stop learning about who he is and every aspect of the riches of his character. And there'll be no earthly veil to cloud our view because we will see the Savior face to face. Of all the aspects of heaven, this is most glorious. You know, and I wonder, Scripture is not full of many descriptions of what eternity is like. And perhaps the reason for that is because the most important thing is that heaven is about a person and not a place. And we will see one day Jesus face to face. We were made for another world. Eternity is our home. Heaven is our home. And it's going to be more glorious than we can ever imagine. It's a place where we will experience the fullness of life as it was meant to be without sin and suffering and death. It's a home where we will dwell forever in the presence of Jesus. Let me bring this to the conclusion, to a conclusion. In the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of heaven. Like all the books in the series, if you've read that series, something happens that trans or kind of basically kind of transports these kids from our world into the world of Narnia. In this last book, the kids are magically thrust into Narnia just before a near collision of a passenger train they were on. When the adventure is over, the children are deeply saddened that they will be sent back to our world as they have been so many times. But Aslan has some good news for them. Listen to what, how C.S. Lewis closes the book and this series. Aslan turned to them and said, you, you do not look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy, one of the children, said, we're so afraid of being, away, As, being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our world as you have sent us back into our world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in Shadowlands, is what he called Earth, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is morning. You are The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for this, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they are beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's just bow and pray. Father,
we thank you for the hope of heaven. Lord, we thank you that because of what Christ has done on our behalf, because he lived a perfect life, because he bore our sin as our substitute, because he drank dry the cup of God's wrath, he shed his blood for our redemption. Lord, he rose again, satisfying fully your righteousness. Lord, because of all that Christ did in his life and death and resurrection. Lord, heaven is our eternal destiny and our eternal home. Father, you know here, as a result of recent events, Lord, there are many still grieving and will continue to grieve. Lord, I pray particularly for Bob and Chris and Nathan and their family, that, Lord, you would bring nearness and comfort. Your presence would give them hope and assurance that they will see Linda again. Comfort your people with your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.